This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Mike Siegel, Democratic candidate for Congress in Texas's 10th. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be with you. Of course, it's our pleasure. So you ran for this seat in 2018 and lost by just four points. Why are you running again? And what's different this time? Well, I'm here in Texas in the uh, 10th Congressional District, which uh, was a gerrymandered seat that was drawn about 15 years ago to be 60% Republican uh, and has been held by a guy named Michael McCall who's held the seat uh, basically seven and a half terms at this point. And um, last time we ran just on the principle that we need to challenge every single seat in the country and McCall in particular has been a particularly odious Republican voting with Donald Trump 99% of the time, supporting some of his worst policies like uh, family separation policies and attacks on health care. So really, it was on principle that we need to challenge him, uh, make him, try to hold him accountable for some of the terrible things he's done. Along the way, we we gathered a lot of momentum and uh, were able to bring this seat within four percentage points and held McCall to 51% of the vote, even though he's basically the wealthiest member of Congress worth over $300 million, and nobody thought we had a chance of winning. And so when you ask why I'm running again, it's well, we made a ton of progress and let's finish the job. You know, um, we showed that this district is really in play. And uh, we think that with a, a longer runway, with a little more work, we can flip the seat. And so how did you overcome the issue of gerrymandering? How did it affect the campaign? Getting a little bit into the details here. This is a district that um, historically was in the Texas Hill Country, uh, included Austin and some areas to the west, was a seat held by folks like Lyndon B. Johnson. But when they redrew the map, they basically took a slice of Austin, about 25%, and combined it with seven rural counties and a, and a conservative part of the Harris County suburbs outside of Houston. And so the way we attacked it was really to not move to the middle, but instead to focus on running a real progressive campaign where we're pro- providing a real alternative to McCall, the incumbent. And so we turned out a ton of votes in the Austin area. We actually beat McCall by over 50,000 votes in Travis County, where Austin is. And then we went out into the rural areas and into the suburbs of Houston, focusing on health care, focusing on infrastructure, and basically making the case that McCall has been completely ne- neglectful of the needs of the people. Um, I think one reason we were able to make so much progress is because I was running alongside Beto O'Rourke, and he was attracting a lot of people to turn out and vote uh, who don't ordinarily vote. And I did five town hall events with him. Each one of them turned out a thousand or more people. And that, so that, that helped to get people engaged. But overall, we were showing up in places where uh, Democrats in Texas haven't shown up for decades. And so just the simple fact of traveling to each of these rural counties, meeting with the local Democrats, that made a big difference to get people excited. And obviously, we don't know who the Democratic presidential nominee is going to be in 2020. But inevitably, you will be up on the ballot if you win the Democratic nomination again with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket for the GOP. How is the fact that it will be a presidential election going to impact the race? And how are you preparing for that? Well, you know, I think there's a big question about who the nominee is going to be. And so I think from our point of view, we want someone who's focused on a real comprehensive field campaign having you know thousands of volunteers knocking on doors, doing all the work that, for example, Beto did in this last election, where he convinced thousands of people across Texas to get involved in politics who hadn't been involved before. So um, hopefully one of these more progressive candidates gets the nomination, someone who's really going to inspire the grassroots. 2018 give, gives us a good sense for how this district is going to turn out because uh, someone who's just about as unpopular as Donald Trump is Ted Cruz. And so 
In this district, Beto actually beat Cruz by less than one percentage point. Um, I trailed behind him by a few points. But so that to me shows that this truly is a winnable seat for the Democratic Party. As long as we're drawing a clear alternative to the, the Republican business as usual, I think we've got a great chance in this district. And when you say that you're a progressive, what does that mean in terms of policy? Well, uh, just to give you a few examples um, in, in for this cam- next campaign, 2020, we have four lead policy positions. First, on health care, it's not just arguing for increasing access to care, you know, expanding the Affordable Care Act or, you know, implementing the public option. I'm fighting for Medicare for all. The idea that we need a truly universal health care program that guarantees care for everyone and that only by having a universal health care program can you realize some of the cost savings to offset adding additional people. You know, we, de- we need to decrease uh, the cost of services. We need to get rid of these administrative fees, uh, these profits that are being extracted from the healthcare business, you know, decrease prescri- prescription drug care costs. So these are the kinds of things that um, the cost savings that a universal approach will achieve that makes it affordable for the country. So after Medicare for All, a big one is ending the war on drugs. You know, criminal justice reform has to be a leading edge of what we're trying to accomplish as progressives. And to me, that means, you know, not just decriminalizing marijuana, which is a big one, but really um, combating racist law enforcement practices all the way from the way we arrest people and police communities to the way we prosecute crimes, sentencing, you know, the cash bail system that a lot of people are starting to pay attention to which is completely discriminatory, keeps poor people, predominantly black and brown folks, locked up when they haven't even been convicted of a crime. Uh, So criminal justice reform is a leading issue for me. And and to me, the way to frame it is ending the war on drugs. Because we know that the war on drugs was started under the President Nixon regime as a way to continue Jim Crow-type policies, to keep uh, African-American folks locked up and oppressed uh, under the United States uh, criminal justice system. So to me, that's a a huge issue. A third plank for us is what's called the Green New Deal, which is a tough thing to run on here in Texas uh, in the outskirts of Houston where there's so many oil and gas jobs. But what I like about the Green New Deal proposal is it's not just acknowledging that climate change and global warming is a huge issue that we all must confront as soon as possible, but it also pairs the focus on climate change with a jobs program by saying, you know what, we're not going to leave workers behind when we transition from an oil and gas, fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable energy economy. We're actually going to invest billions of dollars to develop new jobs in wind, water, other types of renewable energy practices, and other uh, necessary infrastructure investments that will put people to work, making our communities safer and healthier. So when we talk about a Green New Deal, we're essentially looking back to, to the jobs programs under FDR uh, after World War II and essentially guaranteeing employment to any person who wants to work to basically invest in, in a new America. The, for, the fourth prong of what I'm focusing on is voting rights, which is a real no-brainer. Obviously, we need to strengthen access to vote. We need to get rid of felony disenfranchisement. We need to combat some of these uh, racist and prejudicial laws in places like Texas, which are preventing black folks, Hispanic folks, poor people from voting. Uh, In fact, in Texas, we're confronting something right now where the Secretary of State is trying to get 100,000 people stricken from the voting rolls and is using bad data to essentially target new new American citizens, predominantly Mexican-American folks, who have just become citizens and registered to vote. And of course, the Texas Republicans don't like that. And so they want to strike them from the rules. So voting rights is, uh, is the fourth part of, of our program to start out. And looking at these issues in order, recently we've seen some strong debate on what Medicare for all means. Do you believe that Medicare for all should entail eliminating the private market? I guess the way I look at it, um, we don't have to use that phrase eliminating the private market because to me, it, what we're saying is everybody qualifies for Medicare. And only by having a universal health care program can we realize the kinds of efficiencies and cost savings to guarantee care to every single American? Now, if you are guaranteed uh, Medicare services, but you want to go above and beyond that and buy your own insurance, to me, that we shouldn't 
prevent anyone from taking that kind of independent action. But we can't waffle on what the guarantee is going to be because this is such an important moment in American history where we do have the opportunity to have comprehensive health care reform and we can't afford to take any more half measures that don't extend care to everyone who needs it. And so this is a life or death issue. You know, by adopting the Affordable Care Act, we, we saved thousands upon thousands of lives. I personally know people who would not be alive but for the Affordable Care Act. But now the American people, I've seen polls that say 70% or more favor Medicare for all. We have to go all the way. And so um, I hope that, you know, these presidential candidates really think it through uh, in terms of how they articulate the demand. But I really do think it has to be Medicare for all. And if folks want to buy, you know, essentially double up on insurance because they have a particular service or program they like, that's fine for me. But we can't be afraid of confronting the special interests who basically want to guarantee their profits from our, our health care. Because when you take profits out of our health care budget, you're essentially killing human beings. I mean, you're making it more expensive for us to guarantee health care for everyone, which necessarily results in people not having the care they need. So I really want to stand firmly on universal health care. And how is your campaign going about combating and preventing corporate corporate interests? Well, I've taken a strong commitment to not accepting any PAC contributions from corporations. So I don't accept any corporate PAC money. I have received a few union donations and other, other types of, of PAC donations, but no corporate money. And I think that's important because corporations are not people. And unlike a union, which is composed of members, a corporation is just a, a special interest that's only beholden to uh, extracting as much profit as possible for its shareholders. And so that's number one. Um, you know, I don't accept any money, so I'm not bought uh, by any corporation. Uh, but also, I'm running a campaign that's really going straight to the people. You know, in this last election, we mobilized over a thousand volunteers, and I'm making myself available and accessible to people through town halls and other public events. So, really, we want to be accessible and responsive to the people of this district. And so, I think by by having a funding model that's based on small dollar donors. Uh, going straight to people on funding the campaign, and then also having a, a field perspective, an operational perspective that, that's going straight to the people and that's fighting on the issues that, that people articulate matter to them most. I think that's how we, we show ourselves to, to be more responsive to the actual constituents of this district. And when it comes to the war on drugs and criminal justice, what is the alternative to what we see right now? Well, uh, well I think we need to dramatically reduce what uh, some people call the prison industrial complex. Unfortunately, too many people are making money off of the prison system. Uh, too many people are, are dependent uh, for their profits and livelihood on other people's pain, on the destruction of families, tearing families apart. So really, if, if we take just drug crimes out of the prison uh, system and put that into the, the social service context, you know, that, that drug abuse, for example, is something that's um, you know, it's a public health issue. It's something that should be addressed through care and support and services and should not be criminalized. I think big picture, um, the United States incarcerates more people than almost any country in the world. And that's, to me, a reflection of the lack of justice we have in this country. So I want to dramatically reduce the size of our prison system to take these people who might have medical needs, issues like depression, for whatever reason they're reliant upon uh, drug use. Uh, we need to take them out of the prison system. And then also take the people who are basically making a living off of selling uh, illegal narcotics, take them out of the prison system by legalizing and regulating some of these drugs, like marijuana, for example, which many states in this country have agreed uh, should not be criminalized. Um, that by itself will take untold thousands of people out of Texas jails, out of the United States jails, will save us money and free up resources for true social concerns, whether that's housing, uh, better jobs, healthcare, climate change. And over half of individuals incarcerated in state prisons are incarcerated on violent convictions. How should we go about dealing with those? Well, certainly, um, you know, I'm not for abolishing prisons. I mean, I will say that. So when we talk about people who are accused of murder, obviously they are not um, safe for the rest of us. So they need to be separated. And that's, that's one of the, the, you know, the concepts of, of incarceration, right, is 
basically to protect the majority by isolating some people. Um, at the same time, you know, if we kind of divide up the crimes for which people are incarcerated, first we've got people who are drug users. Let's, let's take them out of the prison system. Uh, maybe drug sellers in many situations should be taken out of the prison system. And then if we decriminalize some of these drugs that people are depending upon for their livelihood, I mean, if you just think about a, a, a street corner where kids are competing to sell drugs and sometimes shooting at each other to claim a particular spot which is lucrative to sell drugs, if we move that activity, that narcotic activity, into a safer realm where there's storefronts and security and legal regulation, that will also decrease violent crime. Because part of what's happening is a competition for scarce resources, right? People are fighting over the ability to make money selling drugs. And so, we, by legalizing some of these drugs, we will also decrease violent crime. I, th I don't think we will ever get rid of all crime. I mean, there are some people that are sociopathic, that are murderous for reasons unrelated to, you know, for example, drug policy. We can take uh, dramatic steps, uh, make a lot of progress towards reducing incarceration by simple-minded things like decriminalizing marijuana and ending the war on drugs. In terms of violent crime, how do we go about targeting the fundamental causes of why these things happen, why domestic abuse happens, the root of toxic masculinity, so that we're not just punishing it when it happens, but preventing it from happening in the first place? That's a great question, and I, I think you've got some answers I'd like to hear. I mean, I, I'm a former public school teacher. I taught third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade in public schools. And so I do think strengthening public education is part of this, right? Um, if we can teach people to be kind and considerate, to observe the golden rule, rule in the public school system, that'll help some. I think some of this is an economic justice question. I mean, why do people become uh, desensitized to violence? Um, why do people... Uh, you know, become abusers. Well, some people are growing up in extremely vulnerable and impoverished conditions. And so, if we can create some more economic justice, whether it's housing, uh, full employment, health care, I think that'll take away some of these risk factors that lead some people to be abusers. I also do think we need to take very seriously crimes of domestic violence, hate crimes, uh, crimes against the LGBTQ community. I think, you know, from a law enforcement perspective, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a disproportionate focus on, for example, drug crimes, um, you know, policing black and brown communities, and we don't police crimes like domestic abuse, abuse and violence. And sometimes police officers don't take those crimes seriously. We need a comprehensive approach to some of these issues uh, that includes education, public health, uh, economic support, as well as a change in law enforcement priorities. You mentioned the importance of housing and healthcare. Of course, you do believe that healthcare is a human right. Do you believe that housing is as well? You know, in addition to being a teacher, I've been a, a civil rights lawyer and, you know, I've been involved in human rights cases. And, you know, we have this, this thing called the United, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, which I think should be essentially a law in this country, which includes the fundamental right to housing. Uh, as one of the human rights. And so, to me, uh, we should try to fulfill that. You know, we do have a, a very strong federal law, the Fair Housing Act, that was one of the, the major gains of the civil rights movement in the 60s that has been weakened over the years. And I think we need to go back to strengthening that, whether it's public housing or housing vouchers or other approaches to uh, homelessness and uh, transience. Um, we need to make sure that everyone has the basics of life. And, and to me, that's education, healthcare, housing, and, and quality employment. And linking two of the issues that are really important to you, criminal justice and voting rights, in Florida in 2018, we saw a ballot measure overwhelmingly passed that gave back the right to vote to most people who were incarcerated on a felony conviction after they finished their sentence. We have more progressive folks advocating for not actually stripping the right to vote from anyone based on any sort of conviction or incarceration. What are your thoughts on prison disenfranchisement? Well, I really like the reform that uh, the voters in Florida uh, approved this last election. I would love to see that in Texas and across the country. 
I don't agree with uh, disenfranchising any American citizen. Um, I, I, you know, the right to vote is the most fundamental right. Um, so really, any burden on uh, on the right to vote is essentially creating uh, second class citizens. Someone can make the case that there might be extreme circumstances when you should be disallowed from voting. Uh, you know, but I I am not really in favor of any felony disenfranchisement. To me, uh, prisoners are already being punished by being locked up or subject to probation and parole. I mean, that is the burden that we're placing on their liberty as a consequence of um, of whatever crime they committed. It's oftentimes, we're, we're doubling on top of that uh, financial penalties that basically create debt that people are, are forced to live with after they, they do their time. I'm against that as well because to me, if we're imposing a sentence as a, a society, when you complete that sentence, you should have a chance to renew your life, to have a second chance. And so whether we're placing economic burdens on people after uh, their sentence or whether we're burdening their right to vote, to me, that's anti-democratic and it's creating second-class uh, citizenship. And that's dangerous because when you take people's rights away, uh, you diminish their their buy-in to our culture and our society. They're not going to respect the norms and laws of society if society is basically subjecting them to double and triple punishment for their crimes. So um, I really support what the folks in Florida have done, and I hope we can expand that effort across the country. And looking at voting rights, could you tell us a little bit more about your platform, especially in the context of HR1, which Democrats are currently trying to pass through the House? Well, I certainly support HR1. Um, for me, my, my commitment to voting rights actually comes out of something that happened in our campaign in 2018. So in this congressional district, uh, the 10th Congressional District of Texas, is Prairie View A&M University which is an historically black college in Waller County that is located on the, the former grounds of, of a slave plantation. And unfortunately, the culture of that slave pan, plantation permeates the county and continues to impact Prairie View A&M to this day. And um, for 40 or 50 years, the students at Prairie View have had to fight for the right to vote. Basically, when this country lowered the voting age to 18 years of age, when uh, students at Prairie View attempted to register to vote, racist local officials, including the district attorney, denied them the right to vote by saying they weren't residents of Waller County. And the students there had to fight this issue all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, where they won in the 1970s a Supreme Court decision, which basically established the right to vote for college students uh, at every campus across the country, basically establishing the principle that you can vote where you attend college. Uh, unfortunately, even though they won at the Supreme Court, local officials continued to suppress the right to vote for decades after, even prosecuting kids for so-called um, criminal voting violations. So fast forward to 2018, when during this last election, the Waller County elections official told students at Prairie View that they would not be able to vote on election day unless they submitted additional proof of their residence. And uh, without getting too much into the details, this was just basically a continuation of 40 years of voter suppression there. And my, my campaign got involved. Um, my local organizer delivered a letter to the county judge, uh, you know, the local legislative leader, and in the process was arrested <laughs> by county law enforcement officials who basically asked him what he was doing, why he was submitting this letter, and who he was working for. And after he mentioned that he was working for a Democratic candidate, he was arrested. Um, as a result of this arrest, I was able to get some attention, including uh, two appearances on the Rachel Maddow show, and we forced the county official to reverse this policy of um, putting an additional burden on student, vo student voting rights. Uh, in the process, we were able to get Rachel Maddow to tell the story of, of Prairie View A&M students and their, their fight for the right to vote, including a 19-minute segment she did. And so building on that work at Prairie View, uh, we just want to fight for voting rights. So I do support HR1. Uh, we need to fight gerrymandering. We need to get uh, money out of politics to the extent we're able to without a constitutional amendment. Uh, we need to try to overrule some of these ideas such as corporate personhood and the right that a corporation has First Amendment rights to give unlimited money in political campaigns. In Texas, we need to make sure that voting regist voter registration is easier. I support same-day registration. 
Uh, I support online registration. Um, so there are a whole sort of, you know, a whole assortment of things that we need to do to make sure that voting is easy and accessible for everyone. But to me, the, the voting rights issue is an intersectional issue that intersects with racial uh, injustice uh, and all sorts of types of discrimination in this country, including the most recent voter purge that's happening in Texas that's uh, where they've targeted 100,000 recent citizens who have registered to vote who are pr predominantly Mexican-American. Unfortunately, attacks on voting rights in Texas are, are usually attempts by the Texas Republican Party to suppress the votes of black and brown folks who might otherwise vote for Democratic candidates. And very notably, the county where this arrest of your campaign worker occurred is also the county where Sandra Bland died in jail after being pulled over for allegedly failing to signal a lane change. Uh, you are very focused on racial justice. What exactly is your racial justice platform? And how are you going to deal with this hyper-policing? You, you talked about working on the other side of prisons. What, what changes with the policing side? That's right. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. You know, because of, of the work that students did to draw attention to the Justice for Sandra Bland uh, movement, um, the road leading into Prairie View A&M University is now called Sandra Bland Boulevard. And so you can't help but be confronted with, with that history uh, when you go to the campus. Uh, and so in terms of discriminatory policing practices, uh, I think this is like getting at the foundation of the United States of America, our legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow, and how do you achieve uh, justice and an equitable society here in the South. And so there's no silver bullet. I mean, I think it does include education and strong public schools where we're teaching uh, mutual respect and respect for all identities uh, in, in the public school system. I think it does include uh, economic justice because by um, basically allowing for folks to progress economically, you are allowing them to have you know, self-empowerment and self-determination. Um, I do think it means specific reforms aimed at police departments. Uh, in terms of my congressional campaign, you know, predominantly uh, policing is a state function. So, you know, with the, the federal system we have in this country, uh, states have a lot of the power in terms of regulating police, funding police. But the federal government has the carrot and the stick. So the carrot being police departments are funded uh, up to sometimes 20, 30 percent by federal grants that can impose all sorts of conditions on the police. And so um, from that point of view, whenever we give grants for local police departments, there should be requirements for training to make sure that we are using, you know, best practices in terms of community policing. You know, not, not having a policing system that's focused on statistics, you know, increasing your arrest rate, but rather is focused on uh, strengthening ties with each neighborhood, with each community, encouraging police officers to walk the beat to get to know their communities. Uh, it should be, you know, bias training. It should be collecting data on the racial composition of arrests. It should be collecting data on police killings. So those are some of the strings you can attach to federal funding programs. And then on the enforcement side, the stick side, we need to have a Department of Justice, including the Civil Rights Division, that is willing to prosecute police abuse crimes, especially in places where the local district attorney might not be willing to hold the police accountable. And that's a problem in Waller County and many places in Texas where th there's basically too cozy of a relationship between the district attorney's office and the police chief or the county sheriff. And so the federal government needs to be an objective um, you know, broker uh, of good policing practices. And so when there is an instance of excessive force or an unlawful police killing, uh, an extrajudicial killing, so to speak. Uh, we need to have federal uh, charges brought by uh, uh, federal prosecutors, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and other attorneys in the Department of Justice. A question on race you may find simple that we have seen Democrats provide wishy-washy answers on recently is the question of whether Donald Trump is racist. Quite simply, is Donald Trump racist? Quite simply, he is. There's no doubt about it. If he walks like a duck, Talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know. Um, and I think we can see that in his words, in his deeds. Uh, 
you know, the first speech he gave about, you know, rapists coming across the border from Mexico. His whole focus on immigration is blatantly racist because we know that there is illegal immigration, so to speak. Uh, we have people overstaying their visas who are coming from every country in this world. They're coming across the northern border. They're flying across the Atlantic Ocean. But his only focus in terms of immigration is the southern border where brown folks are coming from uh, Central America, Mexico, and further south. And so we know from his immigration policies, he's racist. Uh, you know, the travel ban, the border wall, these are all monuments uh, to his worldview, which is that America is a white nation. Uh, and he's tapping into these folks who really believe in white supremacy. Uh, we also see that in how we responded to Charlottesville, um, the whole, you know, good people on both sides argument. I mean, if you can justify Nazis as being good people, uh, you are you are co-signing on a white supremacist worldview. There are many instances of him targeting black people at some of his Make America Great rallies, uh, patently racist comments. You know, I, I think we could go on and on. But, you know, short answer, yes. And looking at Charlottesville, we have seen law enforcement agencies at the federal level list white supremacy as one of the greatest terrorist threats, as the greatest terrorist threat in the nation. But we haven't seen Congress act on that. We haven't seen the executive branch act on that. What does it mean to truly address that as a national security threat? Well, you know, there's, there's many layers to it. Um, I do agree that Congress can do more essentially to compel the Department of Justice to treat uh, white supremacy uh, and these kind of uh, white power hate groups as, as a threat to our country. And I would like to see more legislation along those lines. At the same time, um, we've seen that the current Department of Justice has basically dismantled essential programs that were investigating hate groups. I think one of the first things that Jeff Sessions did at the DOJ was to dismantle a program that was infiltrating and disrupting uh, white hate groups. And so uh, that's, you know, one of the things I'm hopeful for about a Democratic president uh, in the next administration is that we will get someone really strong and forceful into the, the DOJ, and, you know, as Attorney General, who will reinstate these programs, uh, who will renew the FBI's mission to disrupt these groups. I mean, one of our most important civil rights laws in this country, um, you might have heard of a lawsuit called the 1983 or Section 1983 lawsuit, is basically a law that was called the Ku Klux Klan Act. And I think it was of, uh, might have been uh, 1877. But I mean, we recognized the KKK as a threat to this country over 150 years ago. And uh, unfortunately, these types of folks are still a threat today. So you know, when you're looking at the mass shootings, as you alluded to, they are predominantly uh, committed by, by white hate groups. Um, if you're talking about even issues like domestic violence, I mean, like w once you're willing to dehumanize uh, another human being based on their skin color, you're, you're also willing to dehumanize your partner or women or, uh, you know, folks of a, a different sexual orientation. So we really need to address this type of hatred uh, at its root in this country uh, to to create safety, you know, in the United States. And what is your immigration platform? Once you get into a question like comprehensive immigration reform, a lot of people's, uh, you know, eyes glaze over. It can be very tedious. But I think big picture, uh, we need to have a humane approach that respects human rights, that allows for uh, a reasonable path to citizenship for every person um, who is, you know, lawfully seeking asylum, or has family members in this country who are citizens, uh, we need to have a reasonable immigration system that's not based on outdated notions. I mean, once you get into a question like quotas, for example, you realize that a lot of the quotas were established decades ago and have no relation to who's actually immigrating to this country. Uh, if you look at the line to get a green card or to be processed for citizenship, um, you talk about decades if you're coming from certain countries. You basically leave people no choice but to be an undocumented resident of this country when you say that the line to having your, your green card application pro process is going to be 20 years. I mean, if you're facing uh, violence or starvation at home, uh, you're going to do whatever you can to, to create opportunity for your family. And so, unfortunately, um, the current system creates all sorts of bad incentives for people to violate the laws of this country. 
Uh, there's all sorts of details where we need more immigration judges. We need public defenders for folks who are in immigration proceedings. Uh, we need to um, get away from private uh, prisons in the immigration context where you have these folks operating these ice boxes that are literally leading to deaths uh, from people who are seeking asylum and protection in this country. Um, there's a whole list of things, but I would start with just a humane approach that respects human rights, that respects the international right to seek asylum, and uh, take it from there. And looking more at the history of immigration, I'd like to go back to 1882. I'm going back that far because the Chinese Exclusion Act is what criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. This quote is in regards to deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. What are your thoughts on this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? Well, I think it's uh, very eloquent and, and true. Um, you know, when we talk about immigration reform, I, I think we should take criminalization off the table in almost every instance. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned... Uh, about our post 9-11 uh, reforms in this country is that we basically changed the way we prosecute uh, immigration offenses. And it, you know, they, they, when they created ICE after 9-11, they basically combined a unit that was focused on cross-border uh, major crimes committed by cartels and combined them with the uh, enforcement uh, program that was focused on people that overstayed their visas. So literally right now, we created this huge hammer that used to apply only to the most extreme and, and violent situations. And now we're applying it to just every single worker who overstays their visa in this country. Um, and so, you know, we need to get back again to a more humane approach. And I agree that um, in, in many instances, um, deportation is just an extreme measure that shouldn't be on the table. I think one of the most obvious examples of this is when we deport uh, former soldiers of the United States military. I mean, the idea that you can go serve uh, one or two or more tours of duty and you can risk your life for this country, you know, what a lot of people believe is to be the highest level of public service. And then later, if you commit a crime, we're just going to take all that away from you. We're going to deport you. We're going to deny you your veterans' benefits. We're going to deny you uh, access to health care programs. To me, it's cruel and unusual. And it go it's contrary to what I believe uh, the United States is supposed to stand for. And do you support abolishing ICE and placing immigration uh, back under the jurisdiction of the Justice Department? You know, um, I don't, I haven't yet said, you know, abolish ICE, hash, you know, hashtag abolish ICE as part of my campaign. Part of that is because a lot of people mean different things. Um, there are some people uh, in the immigration rights movement who are truly for open borders. And, uh, you know, when they say abolish ICE, they mean have no enforcement program. Other people, when they say abolish ICE, uh, they, they mean um, let's go back to the pre-9-11 uh, form, you know, including, like you said, uh, bringing the DOJ back over immigration programs. I agree that ICE in its current form is brutal, inhumane, and needs to be completely recomposed. Uh, I'm not sure that we can get rid of all immigration enforcement, um, but I do think that we need to completely reform the way we're handling immigration enforcement. And it's kind of like that idea, like when you create a hammer, uh, it's going to be in search of a nail. ICE is this very violent force that has been unleashed on, on you know, basically taxpaying uh, beneficial members of our community. And to me, that's not a program that I support. And kind of on the flip side of immigration is U.S. foreign policy. We've seen a lot of discussion in progressive circles about how the U.S. creates refugees and then refuses entry when their homes are uninhabitable because of U.S. foreign policy. What is your foreign policy vision? Well, you, you definitely stated a, a huge contradiction. 
where in places like Central America, we completely destabilize these countries through our foreign policy, whether it's actions of the CIA or whether it's economic policy or other programs. And then once these countries are completely uh, destabilized, we also deny asylum to, to their residents. My foreign policy uh, starts with, you know, diplomacy as the leading edge. You know, the idea that one of the first things President Trump did was to basically defund huge portions of the uh, Secretary of State or the you know, State Department is absurd to me. You know, we need to be focused on uh, developing broad coalitions to protect human rights, to promote cooperation, um, mutual aid, things of that nature. To me, that means engaging uh, with bodies like the United Nations, including uh, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, which unfortunately uh, the U.S. has left under, or under Trump, or the Human Rights Commission, that is. Uh, we need to participate in the Human Rights Commission. We need to respect the human rights focus of international law. Uh, we need to participate in the organization of American states. I mean, all these things are cooperative entities, and so we should be respecting the sovereignty of these countries in just about every instance, and, and we should be promoting, um, you know, basically helping folks take care of themselves through whether that's investment, technical assistance, or support. And so, um, now all that said, you know, the focus on diplomacy, you know, as someone of Jewish descent, I know there are instances where, uh, you know, foreign powers need to intervene to prevent an atrocity. And so I, I believe that the United States and the, and the allies were justified intervening in Italy and Germany and, and even Japan during World War II. Um, but unfortunately, most of the times when this country has gotten involved in military adventures abroad in recent years, first of all, the action hasn't been approved by Congress, which is essentially unconstitutional. It's a violation of the War Powers Act. And so the fact that we're getting involved in these military conflicts without congressional debate and approval, to me, is a huge red flag that, unfortunately, we have an out-of-control executive branch that is you know, engaging our country in war abroad without the consent of the American people through its representatives in Congress. So I do think that any military intervention needs to be discussed and authorized by Congress. But big picture, I don't think this country needs to be the global police officer Instead of operating, you know, 130-some military bases abroad, I'd much rather see uh, our focus on diplomacy and international cooperation. And right now, we are seeing the U.S. threaten military intervention in Venezuela to support the coup in which opposition leader Juan Guaido, who resides over the National Assembly, which has a disapproval rating of 70%, according to an opposition-aligned poll, declared himself president and refuses to agree to discussion with the current government, U.S. officials, including Marco Rubio, John Bolton, and Mike Pompeo, have explicitly stated that U.S. intervention is about oil. Venezuela has the world's largest proven oil reserves. Juan Guaido has stated that his top economic priority is to open oil up to private foreign investors. Do you think that the United States' intervention and recognition of Juan Guaido is appropriate? No, I haven't seen anything that would justify that. Um, again, this is you know proposed executive branch action to intervene in, in, in Venezuela. Uh, there's been no debate in Congress. And big picture, there's been no principles that we are operating by. I mean, what, what is the justification for intervention in Venezuela? I'm as concerned as anyone that people don't have adequate food. People don't have adequate you know, opportunity for economic success. That's a huge concern, and it does seem that in the transition from Hugo Chavez to Maduro, there's been uh, maybe more concentration in the central government, more authoritarian tendencies. I'm very concerned about that. But what is the principle that would justify U.S. intervention in Venezuela? Then taking a step back, are we going to intervene in every country where people don't have access to food? I mean, there are people in this country who don't have access to food. Would that justify someone else intervening? Uh, in our country's uh, domestic affairs. So big picture, I want us to kind of return to the constitutional balance of powers where Congress is the only authority that can authorize military intervention. And let's have a debate there when international intervention is justified. 
I do believe that in some extreme circumstances, military intervention could be justified, but I haven't seen that case made in regard to Venezuela. Instead, what I think this is, is an ideologically driven agenda uh, where folks like John Bolton, because uh, Venezuela has been associated with a socialist uh, ideology, they, they want to get rid of all traces of socialism in the Americas. And that seems to be what's driving them, not for any sincere concern for the Venezuelan people. And according to the UN, much of the starvation occurring in Venezuela is due to sanctions. UN human rights expert Idris Jazari, as well as Alfred Desaias, the first UN rapporteur to visit Venezuela in over two decades, warned that US sanctions are starving Venezuela and amount to economic warfare, quote, comparable with medieval sieges of towns. A poll conducted by Hinterlaces showed that 81% of Venezuelans oppose U.S. sanctions, which Juan Guaido says he does support. What are your thoughts on sanctions? I mean, I, I think you've laid the case out uh, as well as I could. I mean, when, when you basically engage in collective punishment to oppose uh, the leadership of a country, that's almost always going to basically result in human beings dying, but no change uh, to the political leadership. And so I would like to see other types of incentives to pr promote democracy in every country in the world. But uh, just returning to kind of the hypocritical worldview of some of the folks in the executive branch here, I mean, what is the justification for intervening there? And, and could someone else apply that justification here? I mean, some folks um, at different points in, in, in U.S. history have pointed to the treatment of African Americans in the United States under Jim Crow, under Nixon, even under more uh, recent regimes uh, uh, or recent <laughs> governments in this country, uh, as something that would justify intervention in this country to protect African Americans from the United States government. I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a little bit of an extreme perspective, but that's just to say that in most instances, we shouldn't be doing anything to hurt regular working people through our policies. So whether that's Venezuela or Iran or some of these other countries, I don't want to uh, starve the population just to promote regime change. And as you stated, this is largely about opposing socialism in addition to oil. In Donald Trump's State of the Union, he said that the U.S. will never be a socialist nation, which was met with applause by Democrats and Republicans alike, including Nancy Pelosi. Not so much by Democratic Socialists Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. Among Democrats and millennials, Democratic Socialism is currently more popular than capitalism. What are your thoughts on the insurgence of Democratic Socialism and the popularity among young people like our listeners? I think we're responding to the gross inequality of wealth in this country and how obviously we're living in a rigged system that allows billionaires to spend as much money as they want on candidates and campaigns and basically suppress the rights of the majority. When you have 70% of the people who want health care for all, but then we have a billionaire, former Starbucks CEO, who can basically fund his own campaign and hijack the national conversation, uh, or, or, or Michael Bloomberg, uh, who can use their wealth to basically say, you know what, if the Democrats try to uh, adopt a universal health care system, we're going to run an independent campaign and hand the election to Trump. I mean, this is the kind of situation that leads folks to be open to ideas like socialism. Unfortunately, we're living in a country where we had uh, a red scare, which basically scared anyone away from uh, words like socialism or understanding uh, economic theory through that lens. But at the same time, uh, in this country, if you ask people, do you like social programs like public education and social security benefits? They will say yes. Uh, would you like to have more health care? They say yes. Would you like to guarantee housing uh, for every poor person? Would you like to make sure that everyone has the food they need? Almost everyone would say yes. And so you can cast these, pro these social programs as socialism. Uh, maybe we need to rebrand the term in this country to make it more palatable. But I think most of us want economic fairness. And we don't want a country where the wealthiest Americans can design policies that perpetuate their wealth and guarantee basically a starving underclass of workers who have to work for starvation wages uh, and don't even have enough time to go vote because they're working two or three jobs trying to support their family. I really appreciate with what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and some of these other folks are doing 
in terms of drawing attention to the disparity of wealth and to how that disparity of wealth impacts policies in this country. And a question this raises is, do we need billionaires and trillionaires in our society? Do these people who have hoarded this massive amount of wealth, should they even exist? I think that's a great question. I mean, I, th- I think a billionaire is a sign of market failure, of, of policy failure. I mean, the idea that we have, that a billionaire basically represents how many people suffering, how many tens of thousands of people that can barely survive in order to allow that one person to have so much wealth. You know, recently, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, promoted a 70% marginal tax rate which some people said, oh, that's confiscation, that's un-American, which of course it's not because when you ask the question, name a country that's ever succeeded with a tax rate like that, the answer is the United States. Uh, You just have to look back 30, 40 years when we had tax systems like that. Unfortunately, um, you know, some people don't have that kind of institutional memory where they know this country had a much more progressive taxation system. And so now we we have a situation where the gap between rich and poor is uh, greater than it's ever been. And so, what I'm hopeful about is that we've come to another moment of American history where there can be a reckoning, where we can achieve a more equitable distribution of wealth and opportunity in this country. And so, whether you're talking about uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or, or some of the other folks that are out there running for president, running for Congress, I think there's a lot more conversation about what would be a just economic system in this country. And that makes me hopeful. How can folks get involved and support your campaign? Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think the, the trick is to know how to spell my last name, Siegel. So, Mike Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. Um, so, you know, Siegel for Texas is my handle on uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram, uh, Siegelfortexas.org, you know, S-I-E-G-E-L-F-O-R-T-E-X-A-S.org. Um, you can find us online. Um, for folks who are in Texas, you know, we have a campaign office in Austin. Uh, we're campaigning between Austin and Houston, including the rural areas. So, we'd love folks to reach out. Obviously, donations always help. You know, um, you know that's what it takes to reach out to the people. We need to be able to hire staff, uh, paying an equitable wage of at least $15 an hour. And we're doing that. Um, so, any economic support is helpful. But also, anybody that wants to get involved as a volunteer would be most welcome. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And we hope to get you on in the future after you are a member of Congress. Well, fantastic. Really appreciate all these uh, uh, great, insightful questions. And I look forward to listening to your podcast in the future. Awesome. To our listeners, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on social media, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.